0: Hello and welcome to the Law Club podcast. My name is Nate Dunn and I'm on the board of the Charles Houston Bar Association. And today we are so happy to have with us Shambord Benton Hayes, who's the immediate uh, past president of the Black Women Lawyers of Northern California. She's also the founder and principal of Benton Employment Law, where she represents employees who seek to protect their rights in the workplace. She also trains executives, managers, doctors, attorneys, and employees on ADA compliance, anti-harassment, and discrimination, and other law and employment issues. she is a proud graduate of UC Hastings College of Law and the University of San Francisco. Shambord, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you, Nay, for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be here. And
0: um, so you you went to college and law school in San Francisco. Are you originally from the Bay Area?
1: Yes, I'm a San Francisco native. Um, I like to call myself a unicorn because there's not too many of us out here, but uh, yeah. Yeah. And then had most of my education in San Francisco.
0: Wow. Wow. So is, is, is most of your family still in San Francisco?
1: Uh, They're, they're spread out. Uh, I wish they were still in San Francisco, but we kind of all migrated more to the East Bay.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, What in, what first inspired you to uh, pursue a career in the law?
1: Uh, well, I was very young and uh, something happened that kind of, planted a seed that blossomed into a purpose. I had read, well, when I was younger, I read a lot. I was very, very shy. And um, so books were my reprieve. Um, And I had read a book, A Journey to Justice. And it's a book written by Johnny Cochran, the famous attorney that has since passed away. It was right after the O.J. Simpson trial. So it was kind of the height of his, his fame. And I thought the book was great. Um, my aunt, who helped raise me, she had me do a book report on the book. And then she found out Johnny Cochran was going to be in Oakland at Jack London Square. So she uh, she took me to go meet him. Um, I was actually first in line. And I was so nervous and I wasn't good at public speaking. So when I, when I got in front of him, I just started rattling off these questions and I'm about 11. So he's laughing and enjoying the moment. Uh, and he spent a lot of time talking to me. And kind of what I took away from it, or what he said to me that always resonated was, uh, you're going to be an excellent litigator one day. And I had no idea what a litigator was. I was just excited. It was Johnny Cochran being kind to me. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and he wrote in my book, too, I, the book I had read, which I which I thought was great. And afterwards, I looked it up. Uh, what a litigator was compared to, you know, I knew an attorney, but not a litigator. And uh, it was kind of, like I said, that moment that planted a seed that blossomed to a purpose. I was like, oh, I would, I would love to be a litigator. Like I would love to do something like this. So uh, yeah, that I started planning for law school thereafter. My same aunt that I did the book report with helped me, uh, you know, prepare for law school. So yeah. And it, I knew I was going to law school after that, even in college, I prepared to go to law school. So it worked out and I ended up a litigator. So yeah.
0: Did you have any, did you have any attorneys in your family?
1: No, actually most of my family's in the medical field.
0: Wow. Wow. So that, so that aunt, even though she wasn't an attorney, she still helped you, uh, helped you get ready and helped keep you motivated.
1: Yeah. I think she liked that. It gave me something to do and to focus on and, um, yeah she she was just an amazing woman, so she kind of just uh, pushed me along. so
0: awesome. And then um you served as an extern for uh, the Honorable Terry Jackson, who's now Justice Jackson. Um, can you describe how um, how that experience was, and um, you know, Justice Jackson has broken down so many barriers on her own. And can you just describe some of the lessons that you learned working with her?
1: Sure.. Uh, well, first, Justice Jackson is amazing. Um, I, I saw her speak at Hastings, uh, U.C. Hastings, and I immediately, you know, wanted to get to know her because she was so powerful, so profound, and I just was inspired by her. And this is this was when she was in a uh, criminal court, um, a fifty Bryant, and so uh, I did not get her a chance to talk to her after she spoke. But I took her trial advocacy class, and. Um, she was really tough.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> She's probably one of the the toughest teachers I had because she she expects a lot from you and she pushes you hard. And I think that's so important because you have to be comfortable. You know, if you're going to be a litigator, you're going to be in court. You have to be comfortable with someone challenging you. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I took her class and then I, I did well in that. And then she invited me to work with her and uh, it was great uh most of my time oh actually something fun uh nichelle holmes i worked with nichelle at the same time who's the former charles houston bar association president um yeah we worked for judge jackson we had one really big case and that took about four or five months and then we had a bunch of different criminal cases um that we heard regularly but it was great she's amazing um you know, she's like you said, she's broken down so many barriers. She's just uh, just a trailblazer. So you can't help but be inspired by her and her journey. And uh, she just has such a commanding presence.
0: And uh, fast forward to the present. Now you have an employment law firm and um, that's your, that's your practice area. What, um, what led you to employment law and, and why does that, why does employment law fit you so well?
1: well that's a good question. Uh, I just, I like to call it sexy law. meaning <laughs> that the cases are just kind of interesting. Like it's, you every day it's something new in employment cases. Um, you know, I always feel like I'm not going to get shocked anymore. Like, you know, I've seen it all. And after 11 years, I still see new stuff every day. Uh, I I never underestimate how comfortable people feel at work or things they do at work or you know, the legal things they think are okay. <laughs> so it's yeah. Just, it's just well, and
0: also, hard. I mean, people's jobs is so important to them. They, they, a lot of people define, I mean, most people, def- when they introduce themselves, they say, what do they do? Where do they work? I mean, it's such a central part of, of so many people's lives. And um, when you have somebody at work, or something is happening at work, that is that is not right, it grinds you down, it affects all areas of of your life and so it's really important um, that when something goes wrong at work that people have a strong advocate for them and i one of the impressions that i get i don't do a lot of employment law but i i I feel like in employment law cases it's really um such a great opportunity for people who are well represented by good counsel um it's important because sometimes there's a lot of gray area sometimes there's not but you know you're not. You might not be dealing with like one incident. You might be dealing with um, death by a thousand cuts, or discrimination by a thousand little microaggressions, or emails and things like that. And how do you put together all of these small little events into one case? Um, so can you kind of describe how your experiences uh, has been with, um, you know, building a case from a bunch of small little things that, but the, they ultimately um, come together to be. You know, you know, a series of events which really affects um, your clients negatively.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a great way that that you described it. Um, I could tell you have some experience with it. How I look at cases kind of holistically, and I have been at trial. I've been to trial. I do consider myself a trial attorney. So uh, I kind of look at cases backwards. So when I take them in, one of the first things I look at is how will this case present to a jury? How will this individual or if i'm representing multiple plaintiffs how will they present to a jury Uh, what facts do i need from the company you know to prove the law like what are the requirements i'm looking at that i'm thinking about what discovery i have to do and then why you're doing that why you're looking at it kind of segmented is i'm gonna have to tell a story this is a cast of characters and you know if if this case does go to trial i'm just gonna tell a story And interesting enough, what I've learned from doing trials is that the person with the most compelling and believable story usually wins. That's who the jury usually uh, votes for. Like, there's some other things you're not going to anticipate, but usually it's so much about the storytelling. Um, We're a society where people are inundated with images and um, facts and salacious information so they they need a story they need to be entertained and if you do a good job they'll know your theme at the end like if you pull the jury they'll know exactly what your theme was so that's kind of how I I handle it
0: when uh when you have a client who comes to you and maybe they're they're still at their job versus they've already left their job if, if if somebody comes to you and, and they're still at their job, but they're experiencing this, how is that a different case from say, uh, they've already had it, they've already left or they've already been fired. How does it make it different when um, the person is, is coming to you and they say, my, things are really bad, but I don't wanna lose my job. Or I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of how coming forward with this is gonna affect me um, at my job. Um, How have you seen that play out um, for for your clients?
1: Yeah, I'm really careful with that one. um, Because honestly, I think that in certain circumstances, depending on the facts, uh, it may not be advantageous for them to have an attorney. Uh, It actually might backfire like the they might get retaliated against or fired, even though it's illegal, totally illegal. I, I just don't know that it benefits them. So I'm often hesitant to take cases where the person is still employed. Okay. Um, Cause it also puts the employer on high alert if, if I jump in, um, you know, there's always exceptions to the rule, depending on if the person, you know, can take that risk. Meaning for example, I represent a lot of executives. Uh, they can probably afford to lose their job a little bit more easily, depending, depending, you know, their life circumstances. It's not gonna be, you know, as dire sometimes when they lose their job versus someone who's supporting their whole family and the family's dependent on them you know I probably wouldn't intervene but my goal is just to help them um, understand maybe the law and then maybe the procedures and to know how to use the complaint process because you have usually an internal HR unless it's a small company and then you have external agencies like uh, the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing or the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So it's just basically, I think, giving them tools so they can advocate for themselves. And if they need me at some point in the future, you know, I and I'm able to do so. I I try to help.
0: That's that's really good advice. And um, after you know, you you spent your time um, after after you graduated law school working for other people. Um, in, in law firms and gaining gaining experience at some really top-notch firms, um, and a, at a certain point in, in, in your career, you decided to, to go off and, and, and start your own firm. When did you know that the timing was right for, for you to start your, form, your firm?
1: Well, a bunch of different things happened. The pandemic happened, so we got to start working from home more, and you didn't have to go into the office as much, um, George Floyd happened, like this moment in history where I think, you know, I, I felt like I was a captive audience and watching so much racial turmoil go on in the world, and you know, dealing with the issue of injustice, and um, you know, then there was the storming of the Capitol. It just was so much in this moment. I mean, we're all still in it. I, I may yeah. be an endemic, but you know, we're we're still in all these things. So. Um, I, I kind of my conscious was revived. And I thought about, you know, what I've learned over my career. And I, I really wanted to give a voice to people that could use my skill set. Um, for the past 10 years, I've been on the corporate side, which I love. It's nothing wrong with the corporate side. Um, I'm an advocate for big firms. The firm I worked at was amazing. I could have easily stayed there and been very happy and had a great career. But I felt my skill set was very specific, and I, you know, I had trial training, and I could help people that needed adv- advocacy. So, yeah, I, I thought it was a good time. Um, I also noticed that not a lot of people had experience representing executives, and, and something nice in California is you'll see a lot of minority executives, and so I was like, oh, okay. It, I don't it doesn't have to be minority executives but I was like you know I, they'd like maybe some minority representation that was another area where it's kind of niche and I had niche experience so Absolutely. Yeah those are kind of the two main areas kind of a call to justice as well as you know using my skill set for a very specific demographic so
0: and with workplace discrimination cases we tend to think of negative in person interactions that that happened around the office. Um, has, has remote work changed the types of cases that you're seeing?
1: Yeah. So the interesting thing is, you know, maybe you would think initially that harassment or uh, discrimination might be obsolete in kind of a work from home environment. But you know, if somebody wants to violate the company policies, they find a way to do it. And they just find different creative ways to do it. Um, I'm seeing things where people harass someone on Slack or social media or any kind of the work forums that people use to connect with others. A lot of people have like internal chats that still can use email. So yeah, the I don't know that that impacted much. Uh, phone calls, I've I've had harassment on full call. So yeah, it just, <laughs> the cases keep coming. It didn't, the pandemic didn't change people's behavior. Like there's gonna be people at work that don't follow the policies, so.
0: You mentioned Slack um, and obviously email has, um, are, are you shocked sometimes uh, the the fact of what people will say in writing and, and what people, like the, the the fact that people are oblivious um, to how their Slack messages or their emails come across when they're, when they're talking to, to coworkers?
1: Yeah, a lot of it, I think, is not as overt. I've seen like a lot of memes and a lot of things that are just questionable. It, it's interesting as our society has developed, um, it's not usually, it's still a lot of microaggressions. It's never yeah. like, most people are a little more sophisticated than to say something like, you know, um, I don't like Mexicans. They, they're not gonna say that. But you know, they'll do some meme that's, you know, highly inflammatory and they'll send that to the person or to a group of people. So that's kind of how they get around it. And then they say, oh, it was a joke, or oh, it was in gist, or oh, they, you know, they knew about it. So it was ha. And and you know, oftentimes it is. It's ha ha until someone gets mad. And then they're like, mm, I wasn't comfortable with that. So
0: And what about um, you know, I, I'm sure we've all had. All had bosses, uh, present company excluded, um, who they, they can't seem to get tone right in emails, or they they when they send they'll send uh, you know a request or something like that, or can you do this or whatever. But they just the, the email etiquette is just it's so harsh, it's so condescending. Um, like what crosses the line in terms of a, an an employer talking to uh, an employer, you know, a subordinate superior role of just bad email etiquette from a tone standpoint?
1: So, I mean, that's a great question. And we've all had that boss. You're like, (laughs) you get their emails and maybe like cringe or you're just like, oh, it makes you mad or makes you not want to open their emails. Um, The interesting thing about that is uh, the a-hole boss that no one likes, that's not illegal. As long as they treat everyone you know, equally, <laughs> as long as like they're mean to everybody, um, that's not illegal. There, there's a few cases that kind of dispute, you know, what crosses the line, but really it, it's not illegal. So in those cases, I think it's really on the impetus of the employer, maybe to get that manager some training. Um, it's also on the employees to find a way to either have conversations with that difficult boss to say, you know, you're not comfortable with the tone of the emails or the conversations or the Zooms, um, or report it to HR and say, hey, you know, we're not comfortable with this. And then the company has to kind of train the manager or change something. Um, But unfortunately, a lot of times those those individuals are really high performers in companies. So that's not the first thing they think to do. Yeah. Um, Kind of just allow it and sweep it under the rug until you know, something egregious
0: happens. Yeah. Um, and, you know, kind of on that same vein or on the flip side almost, it's, you know, we've just seen what's been described as the great resignations where so many employees have other opportunities and things like that. And, and it's almost like the balance of power has shifted. Um, has Have things kind of changed from the standpoint that that managers and employers have to kind of soften their approach with, with employees, because if, if they don't, and obviously sometimes this comes with just increasing salaries and things like that, but if they, if, if they, if they, if they, they, they don't change their tone, employees will, will just simply leave.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of interesting to see that unfold, you know, cause we're all dealing with it. We all have mobility. Usually, you know, we can find another job and particularly in California, it's a pretty robust market in most industries right now. Um, but it just depends. It kind of is the goal of the employer. If the employer is trying to retain top talent, then, you know, they are being aware of that they're giving people days off to have work life balance or spend time with their family or kids, or they're understanding, you know, that some people want to work remote most days and only want to come in the office a couple days. So you see a lot of companies doing that really well. And then you see companies that are just churning and burning, and it's always a revolving door. So, yeah. you know, I, I I don't know how that is a sustainable business model, but I, I think in some cases, it, it is certain businesses' models. They understand that most people aren't going to last, maybe more than a year or two, if that long, and so they're okay with it.
0: When uh, a prospective client comes to you, or when somebody asks you about um, problems that they're having. Um, with with their boss or with their employer, uh, how do you help them? You know, figure out whether their situation is just um, an inconvenience or, or or a personality thing that they that they they need not necessarily tolerate, but they need to realize that this isn't this this maybe isn't the best boss for you, but it's not discrimination. It's not something actionable versus. Um, your boss has crossed the line. This is actually you, you actually have legal recourse um, against your employer.
1: That's a great question. Um, yeah, I kind of I'm direct with people. Like I'm I'm kind of your first judge, meaning that I've been on the corporate side. I speak the corporate language, I know how the C-suite meets and determines, you know, big cases when they pay them out or cases they fight. So I look at each case with that lens. So I may be a little bit more difficult than than some plaintiff's attorneys. Um, I'm not as high volume as some people. I kind of cherry pick. And then I try to have that honest discussion with the client and be empathetic, respectful, understand that this is difficult for them. But sometimes it's just not a good fit. Like you just have to choose, you know, nothing illegal happened or it's, it's microaggression, so it's not really covered on the law and you don't have enough of the microaggressions to show that there was discrimination, harassment or retaliation. So you just kind of have to accept, you know, a lawsuit may not make sense, but maybe you should explore other options because, you you know, if you, if you can find another job while you're there, or, you know, start making your life transition. You might want to do that. So sometimes I have to have those conversations with people. If they don't agree with me, you know, I'll, I'll give them referrals to other attorneys so that they can have different discussions with them. So it is just having them understand their rights.
0: When, when clients come to you, um, it, can you describe the difference between when you've got one client saying, uh, you know, my boss is doing these things and, and I have this case versus a group of clients come to you? Um, that have all experienced the same thing, does it make it um, more difficult or easier to have, a, let's say, a, a group of five plaintiffs uh, versus one plaintiff?
1: Oh, yeah, I love um, multi-plaintiff cases because I think, you know, it, it tells a, a different story. It's just not one person saying I was mistreated. I actually have a case where um, I have three plaintiffs against the school district Um, and they're all saying they experience racial discrimination, and they have very specific examples, Um, and there's some similarities between kind of what they experience, even though they're experiencing it on different dates, but with the same supervisor, so it kind of shows that uh, there might be something there, so I I love multi-plaintiff cases. Um, On the defense side, I think the largest one I've ever seen is like a class action but it wasn't like a wage an hour class action it was like a sexual harassment <laughs> class wow. action it was like 200 plaintiffs and I'm telling you to be on the defense side and to sift through that to deal with all the complaints to navigate that and it was during the height of the me too movement uh, yeah. that was quite a challenge so I know that more plaintiffs Presents a challenge for defense attorneys because I've been in their shoes. I um, yeah. have to take it serious in a little bit of a different way when you have multiple people saying similar or the same things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's harder to discredit a group of people than it is than it is one and, um, exactly. single person. I want to switch gears um, a little bit because we've had a lot of of big Supreme Court news in the past, uh, you know, couple of weeks. Um, but I want to start with a positive. Um, so uh, recently, Katanji Brown Jackson was confirmed as uh, the first African-American woman uh, to, to be on the Supreme Court. And, and she will take the bench um, once, um, you know, once a spot opens up for her. Um, I, I want to ask you what, what that meant to you. Um, to see Ketanji Brown Jackson be confirmed?
1: Uh, I mean, I was just overwhelmed with joy. That's an amazing historical moment. You know, we saw our first uh, vice president, Kamala Harris, and we see Justice Jackson. I'm going to call her justice already. I know Breyer hasn't stepped down, but she's a justice to me. (laughs) She's been confirmed. And it was just a transformative moment. I didn't know that in, you know, my lifetime that I would see that because it's taken so long. So, and I, I loved how she handled the confirmation hearings. I mean, she dealt with those difficult days with grace and humility. And I just think she was just representative of what we wanna see uh, Supreme Court justice be. And I think her record speaks for herself. Uh, her record speaks for itself. You know, she has an amazing career and is well-suited to, to be on the Supreme Court.
0: Absolutely. Have you talked to Judge uh, Brenda Harbin-Forte uh, recently?
1: I have. Uh, yes, yeah, she's very elated too.
0: Oh, because <laughs> I, I mean, I've, I've just listened to so many programs um, with Judge Harbin-Forte about, and, and you, you, you can just tell whenever she talks about this issue, it's just so, this has almost been her life's work to make sure um, that we have more representation on, on the bench. And um, so I just, I just know that, that her cup overflowed. Uh, with, with, with this news
1: she's so amazing I mean she does so much work like she just she's tireless um, and I'm always impressed by her and learning from her and I've worked with her a few times on various issues uh, either with you know one of the organizations I've worked with her whether it be cable or black women lawyers and she's she's phenomenal um I think we actually did a statement together about uh Justice Jackson so uh and yes her passion overflowed like that, <laughs> I could feel it on the page
0: so. yeah yeah for sure
1: it, it made me excited to you know experience her joy as well because I think it was authentic you know those yeah. moments are authentic nobody's pretending it's real and it's it's it was time
0: yeah was absolutely time. and uh, on, the, on the flip side um, Judge uh, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson is joining a court that, you know, if, if the draft opinion holds, um, is, is poised to, to overturn Roe v. Wade, and, and who knows what's next after that. Um, and so, um, I mean, I just, I, from, I think this was something that we all feared uh, once the, you know, once the, the numbers stacked up uh, against us. But to see this actually come down in the way it did, um, you know, there's so many uh, checks and balances in our system. But what happens when you've got one one branch of government that that you know the Supreme Court with a six three um, conservative majority, it's like there's not there's almost no way to fix it and un, un, uh, unless judges get replaced and and so um, what is your overall level of concern about what might transpire at uh, the Supreme Court over the next couple of years?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I was very concerned when I saw the leaked to opinion. Um, after 50 years, I didn't think we'd still be arguing about uh, federal protections to abortion. Uh, at least we're in a state in California where we have a governor that's very active and is know on top of things and gonna enshrine it in our you know law in California so I feel protected there but no it's concerning and I'm gonna be excited when uh Justice Jackson takes a seat but I'm still worried it's just odd to be having these conversations in this day and time to be concerned about women's right to choose and um you know, talking about the baby's gestational age. And, you know, I read the opinion. Uh, yeah, I'm familiar with Dobbs versus Jackson. So it's just an interesting moment in history. I'm still kind of trying to process it and just be active and understanding what else could be changed, you know, going forward. So,
0: yeah, I, I think we all, we all, um, many of us share um, a, a similar concern. It, it's one of those things where it's like we, we were always moving in incrementally, you know, like I, I recall like being in law school and, you know, almost your first couple of days in constitutional law, they start back at the beginning. Um, but then you, you go back and, and you just read some of these, hate, these cases over the course of our history. And it's just so um, it was just so sad, um, some of the places that we were. And you see this progress made over, you know, decades and decades and decades. And then all of a sudden, we're, we're seeing that progress kind of go backwards. And I think it, it, it underscores, um, you know, the responsibility that, that all of us as, as attorneys have in, you know, continuing to fight and continuing to, um, you know, represent folks and make sure that um you know we try to build a good um a, a better um justice system and 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 we advocate for our clients and, and speak up for what's right and you know i have heard justice uh, been described as a pendulum you know and and sometimes it sw- swings one way and and that but then it'll swing back the other way and and so i mean in my opinion i i feel like uh, what what recently we we heard about about um, you know Roe v Wade being overturned it, it, it you know we we got to hold that L for a little bit but it's gonna it's gonna motivate so many people it's gonna motivate so many people to vote it's gonna motivate so many people to go to law school it's gonna be it's gonna motivate so many people to to not be on the sidelines and to get into the game and and so I hope that in the long term this was something temporary, which really springs us to action and, um, you know, helps get us to, to where we need to get. But in, 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 but in the meantime, um, you know, it's, we, we got to accept it, but, um, it doesn't mean that we have to, it doesn't mean that, that, that things are going to stop.
1: I mean, I think that's a great observation and I hope it is a call to action. You know, I, I, Yeah, I just kind of was overwhelmed by it that we're we're still dealing with that issue. But I think your insight is astute, I I think that's true. Sometimes it takes things you didn't anticipate to happen to you know remind people what they have what they have to value and what they should be fighting for. So
0: and um changing gears, um, you're the immediate uh, past president of the Black Women Lawyers of Northern California. Um, can you describe um, the importance of that organization in, in your legal career and, and how that's helped you?
1: Absolutely. Uh, first, the first time I went to a Black Women Lawyers Association of Northern California meeting, I think I was, yeah, I was in law school at Hastings. And uh, they had some event in like a hotel suite. And I just sat there and listened. I didn't have anything to contribute at that point, but I was just amazed by the caliber of women and the different kind of industries they worked in and their careers. And they were so kind and welcoming. And at that point, I think I was uh, president of Balsa, but I just hadn't seen, I hadn't sitting, I hadn't sat in too many rooms like that. And Absolutely. so, uh, I, I was just really inspired at that moment. Um, I never thought from that moment that I'd be president. <laughs> like that wasn't even on the radar. I just liked being in the room and uh, yeah, and I was just impressed by it. And so I, I kept going, I went for a number of years and then eventually I, I joined the board. And once I joined the board, I, I saw what kind of impact they were making. I saw the importance of the events they were putting on how it was helping our community and I knew this is something eventually I wanted to help lead and further the vision to be really it's it's about being a safe place for African-American women to talk about their needs um talk about their success talk about what they want to see changed in the law so and I think few organizations um I'm gonna say it like this: have have such a powerful, dynamic group of women. So I, I'm super proud of the organization. Right now, they're under amazing leadership of Suzette Barnes. She's the current president, uh, and I, and I know she's gonna do great things. And she has an amazing board um, under her. The vice president is amazing, Ali Given. So I, I'm just super proud of the organization. And if I could play any small part to help. Support that organization, which I hope I did. Um, you know, I'm extremely proud of it.
0: Absolutely. Um, I, I I have my own um, sort of a similar sentiment towards um, CHBA um, because you know when I started out um, a, a, as a new lawyer, I think it was probably the first six or seven years that I practiced law. I, I was I was working in small law firms. I was usually the, the only person of color there. And it just—it was really lonely. Um, I didn't have anybody who was really looking out for me. I was—I was just a, I was a tire on the car that they were trying to, you know, just burn out. So then they could replace me with with, with somebody else who was, you know, not burnt out. And um, it wasn't until I joined an organization like Charles Houston uh, and I assume um, Black Women Lawyers of Northern California. It's very similar. It's where you join this cohort of folks who um, are in a similar. Are, are, are similarly situated, who are going through um, similar experiences. And, you know, all of a sudden I have this amazing group of, I, I consider friends and family that, um, that are going through what I'm going through. Um, so many, so many, um, so many of us, uh, we might be the first attorney in our family, or we might, um, whatever it is, we, we just don't have a lot of people that we can go to and, and share our experiences and, and um, you know, just get that energy pointed right back at us. And, and having, a, having an organization like Black Women Lawyers of Northern California or CHBA, where you can go and, and just see people who not only look like you, but are going through the same thing, uh, it, it just means so much. And I would just encourage all um, young lawyers or, or lawyers at any point in their career um, to To look out for, um, you know, affinity bar organizations or, or what's going on locally, um, because it 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 makes the practice of law um, so much better and so much fulfilling because you're not just doing a job; you're part of a community.
1: It's so true, Nate. Like you just hit the nail on the head. And it and I, I want young attorneys to understand they don't have to come and contribute; they can just sit and listen. Like if you're shy or you know, you can contribute. If you want to get involved, do, please do, because it's a great, it's important to get involved if you want to, but if you you don't have to, just being around the groups of people, making friends, you know, listening to jokes, telling jokes, just going to barbecues, all that community, I think is healthy, and, and we need it so desperately, because at some point, I think most people for whatever reason are gonna feel isolated in this, you know, particularly being a minority. You're gonna feel kind of, you know, I I sit in so many rooms. I've (laughs) I've just been in so many spaces where I was the only, or they always thought I was the court reporter, or I was never thought of as the attorney. I was always led to be something else. It just, these are unfortunately common experiences that people regularly have. So you know, you, you do need a support network.
0: Um, Shambord, you've been so uh, generous with your time. I just got a, a, a quick uh, last couple of questions and then I'll let you go. Um, what, what was the what, If you can look back on your legal career so far, what has been the best decision uh, that you've made so far in your legal career?
1: It's been a willingness to fail because that's when I've grown the most. So the law attracts a lot of like type A, I've always succeeded. I'm always the best personalities. And, you know, I, I think at certain points, sometimes you can get through most of your life and you're the best, you're the best, everybody tells you that. But but at a certain point, you're going to lose a case, you're going to have something that's very difficult in your life. And usually, From those moments, those difficulties, you learn the most. And those are kind of what you remember. If you succeed all the time, that's wonderful. And I enjoy success. But the failures is where I've grown the most, whether it's in a case or, um, you know, in life or lost a job. (laughs) Losing a job is very traumatic. So, I mean, I deal with that all the time. So it, it gives me a greater empathy for what people are going through. But sometimes, you know, your failures are the most important part of your story, and and sometimes people are afraid of that. But I I tell people the failures are part of it, and don't worry about them. Just respond to them and make a choice on what your next step is.
0: Well, I think that's a great place uh, to finish. Uh, Shambord, Benton, Hayes, thank you so much uh, for making time uh, today. Uh, where can people find you if if um, they've they've listened to this and and maybe they've got an employment law issue or they they're they're looking uh, maybe they know someone who need who needs to to talk to uh, an an attorney?
1: Sure, um, you can find me on my website, which is uh, Benton Employment Law, and if you call into my office, I have great I have a great uh, intake clerk. They'll talk to you, and then I'll, you'll eventually get to me. You can go I've chat on my website uh, so you can chat to someone live or you can also just there's on my website you can send me a a note so um, I'm readily accessible linkedin to on bentonemploymentlaw.com
0: great well uh shambord benton hayes thank you so much um have a great evening
1: thank you so much Nate. you've done a great job this is really amazing platform and thank you for your insightful questions